When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. What the people in this country want to hear is slow politics. Politics. Hello and welcome to Slow Politics from Tortoise. I'm Matt Dancona. And I'm Lara Spirit. In this series, we're digging deep into the world of politics, but in a distinctive tortoise style. In each episode, we'll tell you about one issue, story or person driving the agenda in Westminster. We'll be trying to uncover some of the deeper forces at work and tell you the inside story on the people who, often behind the scenes, make things happen. Today we're going to talk about one of the biggest dividing lines in modern politics, one that should be occupying the minds of every minister, shadow minister and MP. We're talking about how your age defines and determines your politics and what that means for the future of the country. And we're basing our discussion on a large-scale opinion poll conducted for Tortoise by Delta Poll in April. Laura, tell us what the findings of the poll were in, in this respect. So in the respect of age, we noted that the government these days supports older people more than younger people. But when we asked whether or not people would be happy to help younger people a bit more and older people a bit less, which is, you'll notice, quite gentle wording on this question of possible intergenerational redistribution of wealth, by two to one, we reject the view that the government should do this. So we regret we reject the view that the government should help younger people more. And one of the most interesting and surprising things to me about the responses was how they divided along age. So over 65s divide far more decisively. So seven to one against that statement than under 25s do, who are kind of unsurprisingly two to one in favour. But there were clear majorities in basically every age group over 35 uh, who reject this form of redistribution. I mean, that's really interesting uh, to me because I would have thought, speaking as a, a man in his 50s, who's you know, with two kids, powerfully aware of these divides, that there would be some sort of basic support for the, that principle. What do you read into the fact that there isn't? So, Or rather that it's not as high as one yeah, might expect? So, uh, if you remember, I really pushed for this to be asked in the poll because I'd kind of, when we've been speaking about this with Ayrita, I'd said that I really thought there would be a level of um, support for some level of redistribution and anecdotally when you talk to parents and grandparents about whether or not they think that would be fair you do get a large amount of support but actually it, it came out far against and this is actually consistent with the data that exists this finding. Bobby Duffy who's the professor of public policy at King's College London who wrote this fantastic book Generations he spent time in the Prime Minister's strategy unit and has actually spent years thinking about whether when you're born shapes who you are and the myths that have come out over the years of us getting it wrong. So if you read Bobby Duffy's book, Generations, he says that actually there are no countries where there are a clear majority of people who think that older people do not have the fair share of their earnings, right? So 
we don't actually have the level of intergenerational warfare on this topic of wealth that we think we do, despite there being vast inequalities and despite all the wealth that's been created since 1970, largely being among those over uh, 50. So I'm not, I am surprised on one level, I'm not surprised uh, on another level. I think one of the interesting things, of course, is that our closest relationships are often our family relationships. And I suppose in that sense, while we may feel animosity to politicians who peddle sort of a level of generational warfare that we disagree with, we don't necessarily look at our parents or our grandparents and think that they've accrued wealth in just, in just you know, unjustly or think that it's unfair. Let's scroll back from that sort of top line finding to how we got here, which is on a personal level that we first met when I was reporting people's vote which was a campaign to ensure a final referendum on brexit and you were running the youth uh, wing of that and it was very interesting to me that there was it seemed to me there was a strong intergenerational dimension to the mm. case for a, a, a second vote and that in a way the, the most compelling bit of the people's vote argument was that and that seemed to me a moment it felt like a moment do you think that moment was real and if so has it dissipated it's interesting because you're right that we met and we've had a number of conversations about this and when i did the people's vote campaign age was such a prominent part of the case that we were making so the idea that young people saw a brighter future in europe rather than outside of it the idea that there were millions of more voters by the time we were campaigning who had come of voting age and had been able to vote in that referendum And so there was a very intergenerational case made. And I remember looking to examples in Ireland and elsewhere. You'll remember the Call Your Granny campaign. Ideas that by sort of fostering intergenerational claims to young people wanting something different from their elders and being faced with these kind of like demographic and voting blocks to being able to achieve that, that you'd have a sort of sympathy vote or a sympathy intervention from um, your elders in in a view that you support that they might that they might not. And you could argue that age since we met and since then has become even more salient factor in British politics. I mean, COVID specifically was a a, a real age extreme event in the sense that young people, I think two and a half times more likely to be working in sectors affected by the pandemic, kind of risks of economic scarring, they were disproportionately affected by that. But older people obviously, you know, carried the vast majority of the serious health risks from that. So in a number of the kind of biggest shocks that we've seen in the last few years, um, especially with insecure employment, there are real intergenerational angles to that. But you're right that although there is a real appetite in the media to peddle a kind of generational lens on a number of the different dividing lines, um, where they do exist is on party support, obviously. But there isn't the level of conflict, I think, that people often think there is. Yeah, I think there might be here generational lenses, plural, which we might come back to. But mm. just take a, let's go back to the poll, first of all. I mean, it's very striking that the over 65s uh, said by a margin of seven to one that they were you know against even a slight shift in the in in the sort of economic balance and this is odd to me because there has been a great deal of talk about wealth tax which i would have thought is kind of if you if you're reaching the end of your life you'd be thinking well actually this makes some sense do you think the wealth tax idea is one that actually is simply hasn't burst outside of the Westminster bubble? Mm, I mean, I think the wealth tax idea is one that many people agree is sensible, but most people agree is politically currently impossible. It was interesting to me to read that Manu Shafiq, who was brought in to advise 
Boris Johnson. She's one, the head of um, LS, LSE. Yes, uh, who was one of the economic advisors who was brought in to advise Boris Johnson on recent measures to assist in the cost of living crisis, did argue for a wealth tax and has written a book on the social contract. And that was dismissed and not taken up. And I know it's had traction in the US specifically with um, Elizabeth Warren, but also elsewhere. And the case for it is obviously quite overwhelmingly simple, which is that you know, there'd be massive passive, what economists call passive um, gains from asset prices that have fallen disproportionately on older people over the past few decades. I think housing prices in the UK have tripled since the 1970s and the vast majority of those gains will be going towards older people. And the case for a wealth tax uh, is that the benefit that a number of younger people will get from asset transfers in the years to come, they won't get until they're they're old enough in, like, to be able to benefit from them. The expected age now of people from in their kind of late 20s and early 30s to inherit wealth from their parents and grandparents in the form of, of assets is around 60 years old, which is far too late to alleviate from what a lot of people think will be the most the more dire economic consequences of that kind of vast intergenerational inequality that we're seeing now. Yeah, I mean, I think that longevity is actually at the heart of all this, which mm-hmm. is that you used to have a, a situation where there was a, a generation that... that considered 60 old that was its retirement age and by and large it was expected to to retire live five to ten years and then helpfully die part and pass on its accrued capital and assets to the younger generation and that also meant that generational conflict was very straightforward because there really was just the younger generation and the older generation you know now you have 70 year olds and 80 year olds running marathons uh, and you know your generation will live routinely to 100 and that will, will it will not be remarkable and therefore what wealth is what a property is is has changed dramatically because of physiological changes but i guess what where that leads me is it has the old central promise of capitalism you know the the, the, the ladder of opportunity has that actually been kicked away well i think the proportion of Brits who think their children's future will be better than theirs in one survey has halved between 2003 and 2019, which is like really, really remarkable. And the interesting thing about this evidence, which was also in Bobby Duffy's book, is that actually that's not the case everywhere. That is most specifically the case in places like the UK, but it's not the case in places like China, India and Indonesia, where actually around two thirds of people do believe that their children's future will be better than theirs. But it has, you're right, been that central promise of capitalism, which is intergenerational progress and the idea of it. And actually, given that we're seeing a slowdown of that, it's reasonable for people to ask, when will there be some sort of, you know, generational conflict or a sense of young people standing up and saying, this isn't good enough, this isn't fair, this isn't what my parents and grandparents had access to? I mean, you, you know, I remember John Major when he was prime minister in the 90s talking about wealth cascading down the generations. Well, not so much now. Um, and that that idea was not a new one in, in, in politics, especially Tory politics. In, in a way, it was the whole point, which was that, you know, you got onto the property ladder by the time you were 30, you were in secure employment, and then at a certain point, you inherited a, a lump sum from your parents. And that was what kept the middle class as a kind of, those factors were what kept the middle class as a kind of con- coherent voting block. Um, and that has gone now. Um, so I'm very, I'm very interested in what you know where we, we we move forward on this and and to take the example of housing you know what what role house prices have had in all this i think on the question of housing it's really interesting because it is one of the most obvious indicators of where this inequality is baked in so 
now you're far less likely, vanishingly unlikely to be able to own your own home compared to your parents unless you have support from the bank of mum and dad it was in the 1980s you a kind of 27 to 30 year old would have to save for about three years to be able to put down a deposit on the house and that's kind of 19 years now so it really is baking in a level of a kind of massive inequality i think and 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 really threatens social mobility the idea that home ownership now hinges more than it ever has done on whether or not your parents can afford to help you out on that and to a certain extent, I suppose that infantilizes people for a longer period of time. It, 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 or uh, to put it another way, it deprives them of the liberties that used to come with mm. reasonably ready access to property. Yeah, and this has huge impacts because there's this concept of delayed adulthood. Yes. Um, this, this idea that obviously we're seeing, I think in the UK, a million more young people living with their parents now than they did in the 90s. And that has impacts not just on whether you're going to be able to own your own home, but as as you'll see in a number of studies, it has impacts on when you quit smoking or you know, when you're able to have children. A vast range of things of how you how you view your politics and your life, and will have huge impacts on a number of different aspects of the way that we live and the way that society comes to work. I suppose going back to the poll, um, the fact that you know actually the number of under 25s are in favour of even modest redistribution is not that huge it's you know two to one in favour okay but that's not you know it's not overwhelming and i i'm intrigued by the the extent of radicalization and the the and the lack of it i mean I'll be, i've teased you over the jubilee weekend you know about the the whole question of I remember the Silver Jubilee in 1977 and the Sex Pistols were out with God Save the Queen and there was quite a lot of anti-royal feeling, especially amongst young people. And it's a, that's just a case study in it. I, I wasn't aware of anything like that over the Platinum uh, Jubilee weekend. Not saying that, that it would have been a good or a bad thing, but it is noticeable, I think, that um, the new politics of the young, uh, and it has many strengths, but it is mostly about I mean, not to put too fine a point on it, scolding and adding to rules rather than tearing them down. And that that seems to me a new feature in youth culture. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Okay, but we could sit here and have a debate about whether Jordan Peterson has a point, for example. <laughs> but going back to if I'm a kind of older MP in Westminster and I want to know what to do to engage, you know, current and future young generations in British politics... What do you think our poll and also the available evidence out there says about that question? It seems to suggest it, it is an issue. Um, and I think that what the poll suggests, in the break, if you look at the breakdown uh, by age cohort, is that, yes, there is, a, there is opportunity for a party to appeal to the young. What puzzles me, and this speaks to your, you know, what it's got to do with MPs, is why no party really is doing that right now. So I think the answer to that is that if you look at party support, it is now extremely divided on the grounds of age. I mean, older voters are now three times more likely to vote Conservative than they used to be, for example, you saw in 2017 and to a slightly lesser extent, 2019, a huge amount of of youth turnout for um, Jeremy Corbyn. But actually, if if you look at the, the younger demographic of which, you know, I'm a member, there's not a huge amount of voting power there. And part of that is just the basic size of the youth vote, which is smaller than the older vote, right? But part of it is also that we do turn out in smaller numbers um, than older generations. And you you have seen since uh, 2016 a slight uptick in the number of young people who kind of believe it's their civic duty to vote. I think that the kind of, the kind of very seismic political events that we've seen since then have mobilised a number of young people. But it's interesting that the turnout gap in the UK among young people is actually still much bigger than it is in places like Italy and Belgium, for example. Um, And I don't have an answer to that question, but I I just do think that you read occasionally these quite apocalyptic columns from very experienced conservative uh, writers who will say, you know, Tories need to get a grip on the youth vote. And if we're not the future of, uh, you know, if we're not the if we're not representing young people, then how can we expect to have an electoral future? I think, unfortunately, that's very premature. And I think, unfortunately, there's not a huge amount of electoral cost currently in the near uh, future, at least to make conservative electoral strategists at all worried. If you look at the places that the Tories need to win in the next general election, it is not places where there are a huge number of young people. And if you look at the place, I think it was the 10 most safe seats in the last election, uh, almost all of them were Labour, right? I think all but one belonged to Labour because the young people, given that segregation we've spoken about, increasingly live in cities and urban areas that are increasingly considered very safe labour heartlands and seats. So actually, we're not unfortunately making up yet a very core electoral threat to the Tories if they want to win next. And that's one of the key and I think quite unavoidable reasons, unless we change the electoral system or do something really seismic, why young people are set to be cut out of politics for um, a while yet. I wonder whether we're looking at it slightly the wrong way and... and to reframe it, I think one way of looking at this whole dilemma is that th- there's no greater shame for a parent than to think that they'll hand over less. Do you I think? Mean, yes. I mean, I think that that's almost biological. It's certainly ingrained culturally that you believe that, that part of your duty is to, you know, not leave this mortal call until your children are in a a better position than you were or at least in terms of opportunity and i think that 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 conspicuously is no longer true and i think for if you look at 
sort of my age co- cohort, sort of 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, we're, we're now looking at that, you know, what have, how did we blow it, you know, and I think appealing to that is strong. And I think, it's, you know, it's also strong amongst grandparents, because grandparents don't want their grandchildren to be going into a world where you know climate change hasn't been addressed there is no property there are no jobs it depends how you pose the question if you say we want you to give all your money now to young people they probably are broadly speaking Mm. against it if you say are you concerned about the fact that you know you you are you are leaving this to your your descendants i think that's that's a powerful message Mm. but i think the difficulty there is that I'm sure if you ask grandparents, they would say, you know, yes, I care deeply about leaving things to my grandchildren, but they wouldn't necessarily say, yes, I'm happy for much more progressive forms of inheritance tax, which economists often say would be even more than a wealth tax, the most effective way of redistributing um, gains across generations. I think there's a really strong sense in our political culture that parents and grandparents deserve to leave what they can to their own offspring. And I think that's one of the reasons why we don't see a huge amount of appetite for complete society, intergenerational redistribution, I think. I think that's a a key thing. And also, I think what you mentioned there about grandparents and parents and children is interesting because you did speak earlier about the differences between specific generations. And actually, the biggest economic difference is between boomers and their children. Baby boomers, those born 1946 to 1964. So what, we, what, what we're talking about, I think, is a situation where generational conflict is not going to be the, the basis of a political offer anytime soon. But I do think it's, I still think it's interesting, this whole question of a wealth tax in terms of people's approach to what wealth is and what it means during a lifetime. So a very interesting little micro parable of this was that George Osborne, during the coalition years, wanted to introduce a wealth tax on the grounds that a there was going to be one sooner or later and b the tories would you know really show themselves to be a progressive party if they did it and see that in coalition with the lib dems they probably had the best chance they had to get it through parliament and cameron said in terms f off which is really? we are the party of property owners we're the party of minimizing inheritance tax and keeping stamp duty down that's what we are and so i don't know whether a wealth tax would have got through and in what form if osborne had got his way what was more interesting was cameron's response which was no you know the conservative party is the party of you do well you get lots of money you get to keep it and then when you die you hand it on to your children which as we've discussed doesn't work anymore no so it that has left that sort of incident which was from a much more progressive conservative party than the one we have today this certainly does not make me think that the Tory party is going to be the place where these issues are resolved in an enlightened fashion. It's interesting that because the question of what is a property-owning democracy as well is, is exactly. definitely... <laughs> like, I mean, James Forsyth, for example, who is a conservative columnist, has, has said that the party needs to get a grip on the idea of a property-owning democracy because that is the future of a conservative party that wins elections, right? Uh, and George Osborne could very clearly make the case that um, a property-owning democracy now does not mean leaving gains to those who have earned them full stop. And it's more and more uh, your ass- the asset you will draw upon, if above a certain level of wealth, to pay for your social care, which in many cases now is going to be, you know, 20 years. Yeah, it's a really important point. So it seems to me that the I mean, the, the point where we, we land, I think, maybe is that the, the generational conflict we're talking about is not between young and old. 
it's a series of negotiations between three generations. It's between the young, the middle-aged, and the ever-larger group of the old, and that that negotiation is going to be a very complex and nuanced one. A very complex and nuanced one that all three parts will not be participating on on an equal political footing and with an equal political voice. The things that come out of a poll, eh? (laughs) That's it from us. Thank you for listening to Slow Politics. You've been listening to me, Lara Spirit. And me, Matt Dancona. The producer is Amelia Janssen. That was the last episode of this season of Slow Politics. If you want to hear more about British politics, why not become a member of Tortoise, where you can read my weekly column looking at the biggest issues in British and global politics and get access to more stories from our team of journalists. Just go to tortoisemedia.com friend and enter Lara50 or Matt50 to get a year's membership for £50. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.